you know, the, the whole premise of the American legal system is that everyone, no matter how, you know, unpopular, deserves legal representation. John Adams famously defended the British soldiers accused of the Boston Massacre, and he said it was one of the greatest things he ever did for the fledgling republic that he helped found. And that ethos is just not there to the same degree today. Was the U.S. Supreme Court leak indicative of a broader shift in America's institutions? Today I sit down with Aaron Sibarium, a writer for the Washington Free Beacon and the former opinion editor of Yale Daily News. He's been researching how law schools have been impacted by woke ideology. What they're going to do is, I think, kind of transform various legal institutions from within, sort of prosecute a substantive ideological agenda through courts and government agencies. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Aaron Sibarium, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me. Aaron, you've been doing some pretty remarkable work. I've been following you for a while, um, basically looking at this woke or, you know, sometimes it's called neo-Marxist, sometimes it's referred to as successor ideology, takeover of American institutions. And, um, you know, back in March, you wrote this piece about essentially the takeover of the legal profession, which wasn't something that I'd seen discussed very much. And then we kind of saw the fruits of that, I suppose, uh, when these notes, I guess, leaked from from the Supreme Court. So I, I want to actually start there with this piece. You kind of predicted uh, the types of things that might happen, but that one, I think, took everyone by storm. So what actually happened for this, you know, unprecedented breach in the Supreme Court system? Well, obviously, we don't know for sure who leaked it. So this is all speculation. Um, but one of the common sort of hypotheses is that it was a liberal clerk uh, who leaked it either to pressure the justices to uh, defect and to not overturn Roe, or, and I think this may actually be more plausible, uh, in order to gin up public support for Democrats before the midterms. Now, obviously, it's an unprecedented leak. There have been leaks before, but no nothing like the full draft of an opinion in modern history, and certainly not the full draft of an opinion as controversial as this one will be. Um, and so I think a lot of people were asking, well, how did this happen? You know, don't Supreme Court law clerks have a sense of decorum and a sense of that this needs to, these deliberations need to be private. Don't they care about the court being unbiased by public pressure? And it would seem that at least for one clerk, the answer is no, or at least they don't care about that as much as about achieving a, a preferred policy or political outcome. And I think this took many people by surprise. I confess, while I was certainly surprised by the magnitude of the leak, it wasn't that surprising to me that it happened in retrospect because law schools have for many years been graduating the sorts of people who believe that uh, longstanding legal norms uh, perpetuate oppression and that we are justified in suspending them in order to uh, solve various moral emergencies. Um, and certainly a lot of progressives uh, think that, you know, the end of Roe would be a moral emergency. So it's not terribly surprising to me it would not be terribly surprising to me if we discover that a liberal clerk leaked this. You were at Yale yourself, and you watched, actually, while you, you were in school, uh, you know, 
these types of changes taking place, this type of ideology entering campus. So I, I guess I want to, before we continue, just give me the kind of background of how you sort of entered this field, so sure. to speak. So I came into college in 2014, a pretty normal, moderate Obama Democrat. Um, I was always anti-political correctness, as it was called then, uh, but on all sorts of policy and even cultural questions, I thought, yeah, the left is right and the right is wrong. Then I became the opinion editor of the Yale Daily News right at the time that the sort of explosion of woke activism began on college campuses. Yale was kind of the epicenter of this, but it quickly spread to all sorts of elite schools. Um, there was some controversy over Halloween costumes, over cultural appropriation. Uh, a professor, Nicholas Christakis, was confronted, surrounded by a huge group of students um, in the courtyard of one of the, the dormitories. Uh, it was a very big controversy, kind of came to national attention. And while it was going on, I was the one who had to field and edit everyone's op-eds about the controversy, including op-eds from the wokest of the woke Yale students. Um, so I got to see how they think up close. I also got to see how they write. The answer in most cases was not very well. Um, and that was all rather startling to me. And I think I'd already been kind of questioning some of the my priors, but that really accelerated sort of my uh, disillusionment with, uh, with mainstream kind of progressivism. Um, and then, you know, if you're disillusioned with mainstream progressivism, who on campus is going to be friendly with you? Well, it's conservatives, right? Even if you don't agree with them on abortion or whatever, they're just, they're not going to call you racist or sexist for believing in free speech. Um, and so, you know, just there's a process of natural kind of social osmosis where you become friends with uh, people who are dissidents of various stripes, and then that exposes you to those dissident ideas. And, you know, I don't know if I'd really consider myself a conservative, um, but certainly I've been pushed further right um, by this process. And I think it is safe to say that I am de facto on the right. Well, you know, just something fascinating I'm finding, you know, you're describing yourself being pushed into being a dissident, being among dissident voices. Uh, the people writing these op-eds that you're describing, oh, they, they see themselves as the dissidents, don't they? Yeah, they do. And this is actually, I think, a, an important characteristic of wokeness. There, there's a kind of false consciousness where the people who have taken over all these institutions nonetheless see themselves as victims and maintain that the institutions are in the grips of a kind of white supremacist ideology, even though, of course, the institutions are actually in the grip of an ideology that sees white supremacy everywhere and has made its central goal the, the exorcism of white supremacy, alleged white supremacy from all our institutions. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that false consciousness is sincere by and large. There's some people who are grifters, but, but a lot of other people genuinely believe it, um, or at the very least, they're, if they disbelieve it on some level, they're not conscious of the fact that they disbelieve it. And so, you know, it's really hard to, to argue with these kinds of individuals. Um, 
and, and this is one reason why I think rational argument is not really the solution to the problem, and that that's kind of the, that for many years, I think that was the way people thought about it. It was, ah, these kids are irrational, so we just have to persuade them through the light of reason that, you know, free speech is good. No, that, that does not work. Uh, you, many of these people cannot be reasoned with, and the, the thought process needs to be, how do we take the institutions back? Because these are basically articles of faith that these people have, and they're not going to be yeah. dissuaded. It's like, I don't, we can get into this. I, I don't love comparing it to a religion because I think that can obscure certain things, but it's certainly that this, this ideology has religious characteristics. It's very dogmatic. And, you know, you think about like trying to persuade like a Catholic not to believe in transubstantiation. It's like, what are you going to do? I mean, this is, it's, a, it's like a category error to even think that this is something that, they, that someone arrived at through a process of detached rational argument or that the reasons they hold this view are, you know, particularly rational or philosophical. I mean, it, it's not to say that the view is true or false. It's just to say that if you, if you think that you're going to argue someone out of belief in transubstantiation, it's like you're making a category error about what this belief even is and what the point of it is. Mm. Reason wasn't really what mattered here. And, and when people try to argue back by saying, ah, but you're, you're making a logical fallacy, it was like the, the two sides were engaged in fundamentally sort of incommensurate uh, epistemic projects. Um, and I think really seeing that and indeed seeing the, the limits of debate was a big part of what started to change my thinking. Well, so what happened? I, and I mean in the bigger picture, and let's talk about the legal profession because, you know, many people saw it in different places. And of course, there is, you know, critical theory does come from the legal profession. Mm -hmm. Indeed, I know mm -hmm. that. But somehow, many of us, as we're kind of learning, imagine that the legal profession would somehow be more immune, just as we imagine the maths or the physics or sciences would be more immune. But it turns out that's not the case, right? Right. right. What happened was uh, the kids who were protesting in 2015 then went to law school, some of them, and then they brought their ideas to law school and their culture to law school. And I would say, Look, in 2018, Heather Gergen, the dean of Yale Law School, wrote this op-ed in Time where she said, you know, yeah, at like Middlebury, you know, people shouted down Charles Murray, but here at Yale Law School, we don't have anything like that, you know, because we teach people in the art of the adversarial profession. And then, of course, three, four years later, uh, Yale Law School has, you know, launches an inquisition against a student who uses the term trap house in an email. Uh, it launches an inquisition against Amy Chua. Uh, hundreds of students shout down or attempt to shout down a bipartisan event on free speech that the Federalist Society hosted. Uh, it's just one controversy after another. And I think, you know, the, the proximate cause of that is just the population of Yale Law School changed, right? And, and the norms just changed. And once the, the students you know, a critical mass of students uh, believe in this kind of thing, uh, unless the administration is really willing to, to stand up to it, it just takes over like that. And Yale Law School certainly has not been willing to stand up to it. And that's not unique to Yale Law School. Well, okay, so really it's coming from the students? And that, that, that's fascinating. Yeah, so right? it's, yeah. it, it is coming from the students. It's also coming from 
certain mid-level administrators who you know are in DEI offices and have kind of a institutional incentive to perpetuate this ideology. I mean, I think that's a big part of the story here, um, that we've institutionalized a kind of activist class that then, you know, that and once that class is institutionalized, there's just no limiting principle on what it will do. So it's, it's a mix of the students, you know, norms changing among the very young and then that trickling up into law schools as those students come to law schools. But it's also broader changes in the way all of academia works. Um, you know, all of academia, the, these DEI offices, they're everywhere. Um, and, you know, and then there's sort of this deeper question about how the DEI offices came to be in the first place. And I think that's partly ideology, but partly also legal incentives, right? You know, a private school like Yale is not bound by the First Amendment, but it is bound by the Civil Rights Act. And, you know, you see the, the construction of these bureaucracies really began or accelerated in the 90s when civil rights law began to attach more draconian penalties um, to institutions that, that were found to have created a hostile work environment. And, you know, before the 90s, there was, like, no sexual harassment training. Like, you just you didn't have that. And now you have it everywhere. And that the, the main reason for that is that there was just a change in um, the legal environment. And then, you know, these bureaucracies that kind of started as compliance mechanisms take on a life of their own. They have these self-interested incentives to perpetuate the idea that racism and sexism are everywhere, because otherwise why have the anti-racist, anti-sexist bureaucracy? Uh, and so it's it's kind of I think partly legal pressures that set the ball in motion, and then a kind of organic process of, of bureaucratic self-aggrandizement that that perpetuates it. So it's interesting. Like, but I imagine if you're in the HR office, you know, and you know you are an adherent of this ideology, you know, while you're hiring somebody through the shared language, or I don't know how it is actually. I'm very curious how this works, but probably you know. Okay, this this person's on my team, and I clear and I, clearly my whole purpose is to stack mm -hmm. as much as possible mm -hmm. with team map team yes. players because we're all somehow exactly on the same right. wavelength, and we're going to be able to push this together. So it's sort of I, I kind of imagine that there's just this sort of you know kind of critical mass because also in among you know in a lot of the academy it, it's professors as, especially in you know the the. Uh, you know, blank studies like women's studies, blank studies departments. It's you know kind of become the, really the dominant ideology in these places. Right? Yeah. yeah. So it, it it is. Although I think the ideology is comparatively more dominant among administrators than professors. Mm. Um, and you even see this when you look at statistics. Like you know, professors. I mean, you know, it's like twenty to one are are liberal. But then if you look at administrators, it's like forty to one. It's it's just, there are not conservative administrators. This just does not exist anywhere. Um, whereas, you know, at Yale Law or, or Harvard Law, you know, even if the staff or the professors overwhelmingly lean left, um, the old guard tends to believe in basic norms of free speech and due process, um, and the and tends to, I think, be very upset when administrators trample on those norms of free speech and due process, as they have done at some of these universities. Uh, to give you just one example, um, a lot of the deans, so administrators of law schools, uh, encourage the American Bar Association to make anti-racism training an accreditation requirement for law schools. Um, and they eventually 
did make something like that a requirement. Um, but it was actually a group of very distinguished Yale Law School professors, among others, who submitted comments to the ABA criticizing some of these proposals because they were worried that it would infringe upon academic freedom. So you kind of see this clash between faculty who want more power and, and are upset that administrators have kind of usurped it from them, and then the administrators who just really don't care what the faculty think and now, for various reasons, just are the, the real loci of power within the universities. Well, and I think if I recall at Yale, you know, in your piece, there's more administrators than there are faculty now, or something like uh, this, right? Or is, yes, yes, there are. At Yale, there are more. I mean, that, that, there's something going wrong, terribly wrong here, or? Yeah, I mean, well, look, you know, I, it's it's partly just the the, the self perpetuating self self sort of inflating logic of bureaucracy. Bureaucracies always tend to get bigger. You know, there's this conservative meme that uh, it's easier to tear something down than to build something up, but in the case of bureaucracy, it's actually the opposite. It's much easier to create a bureaucracy than it is to get rid of it, um, and that's a problem. Um, you know, I think I think uh, there's always a chicken and the egg issue here, which is like what fueled what. But but certainly, coincident with the growth of these bureaucracies has been a change in the way students think of higher ed. Um, it's maybe more acute at the undergraduate level than the law school level, but I, I think. It, it has affected all levels where education is now seen as a kind of consumer good and the point of going to school is to get a, a special kind of experience. You know, like at all these Ivy League schools, they have tons and tons of amenities for the students um, and they're kind of sold as, you know, playgrounds for four years uh, where you can just have fun, you know, get drunk, hook up with a few people. Like it, that's, that's kind of the selling point. As the students come to take on a more sort of consumerist orientation toward the university, the university has in turn taken on a kind of, you know, corporate self-conception, um, extends and influences this, uh, this bureaucratic bloat. So there's kind of two things working at once. You see uh, that the way in which people think about the institution has changed, and then the structure of the institution itself has changed, and these two things kind of fuel each other simultaneously. Fascinating. And I mean, for people in the system, I mean, it's been described by some of the people you interviewed as, you know, kind of living in a panopticon. Yes, you know, every, yes. Absolutely every little thing you do, you're aware that it will be recorded and you will mm -hmm. be judged based on it. Correct. I think that the the panoptic effects of social media have combined with the bloat of bureaucracy in a very unhealthy and, dare I say, Orwellian way. Yeah. But just like kind of growing up as a young person in a world where everything you do is measured, recorded. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I don't know. It, it, I can think of many things that I did that I that, yeah. I, that I'm quite happy weren't on, yes. on video. <laughs> yeah, know? of course. Um, and and part of the other problem here is that you know you don't even have to. It doesn't have to be an explicit transgression of of you know the ideological dogma. It, it can be it can be anything. And and then if you transgress the ideological dogma, this happened at Princeton, right? The guy writes an op-ed that Joshua Katz, professor, writes an op-ed that's critical of some of the social justice stuff, and then the school newspaper starts digging into his past and unearths these already settled and adjudicated uh, allegations, 
incident where he, he'd slept with a student. You know, they'd already punished him for this and said, all right, you served your time, you're done. Then, of course, the school paper, kind of motivated by presumably, you know, woke ideology and anger at this op-ed, digs up the allegations, then the school starts reinvestigating him and, uh, you know, uses this kind of, uh, you know, very, among other things, uses emails, right, you know, exchanged over many years in order to claim, um, I think, somewhat tenuously that Katz did things uh, that he says he didn't do. Um, and so then, you know, they say they're firing him over having behaved inappropriately with the student, but the whole new investigation would not have happened but for the, uh, the initial ideological transgression. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, 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 so technology has made it much easier to come up with pretexts mm -hmm. for these kinds of uh, political witch hunts. I mean, people may debate that characterization of the Princeton thing, but I just, as a broader point, you know, it's just easier to find something you know, that looks bad about somebody in a world where everything is immortalized um, with technology. Um, and I think that's just a big long-term structural change that, that's fueled a lot of this stuff. I mean, this whole Joshua Katz case, and I can see you've been following that quite intently, um, is absolutely fascinating. I mean, there's just, there's this one element, for example, that uh, um, basically they, they've been getting rid of their Greek uh, classes, mm -hmm. right, and Latin classes and so forth. So they want to kind of switch to other languages, right. non-Eurocentric languages. But it turns out that Joshua Katz is one of the few people yeah. who can actually teach in these uh, remaining yes. languages, teach these remaining languages. I mean, just, you can't, you can't write that. You can't yeah. write this stuff, right? It's yeah. weird, poetic. You can't make it up. I mean, it's amazing. Like, he, uh, he's probably one of five, ten people on earth who speak some of these languages because they're so obscure. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, as, an, as an aside, the whole notion that, uh, that these are, that Greek and Latin are even Eurocentric languages, I think, is somewhat ahistorical. You know, the, the very concept of, like, modern Europe and white Europe, it just doesn't really map on very well to the ancient world. Um, but, but they are Western, Yes, right? they, yes. Are, they are so, Western. Yes, sorry, so I, I they can are, see I was using their, sure, their terms. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly, I mean, yeah. I, think, I think you can say yeah. they're Western, but, yeah. but, you know, this is another characteristic of, of woke ideology, the tendency to project modern racial, conceptual, and even sort of bureaucratic categories back onto a kind of pre-modern, very non-bureaucratized society, right? The whole con I mean, concepts of race in the United States were, many of them were just invented by the federal government in the 70s, like AAPI. I mean, there's no, there's no biological or really sociological reason why all these discrete Asian groups should, should go together, but they do because the Office of Management and Budget in the 70s was like, ah, well, we need a way to s administer minority set-aside and affirmative action programs, so, uh, you know, and these activists are kind of pushing to be included, so, uh, you know, well, we'll make up this category and just, just say it works, and it's nonsense, but, you know, it's just sort of the demand of, like, pragmatic administration causes all these, like, fake categories to come into being, and then people try to apply the categories back onto history as if they're these, like, transcendent, you know, classifications that all human society falls into, and it's just, it's just not true. 
You know, in the, in this case, there's also this situation where, like, and this is, I, I don't know if this, is this sort of characteristic of how these woke bureaucracies work, but they're, they're basically firing him in a very public way, mm -hmm. as far as they understand, prior to actually letting him know that that's what's going to go down. Yeah, so they, they fired him. They actually, he, the first he heard of it, apparently, was uh, when the New York Times reached out about his firing. They hadn't even told him before it went. It was public, um, and yeah, they, they look that they clearly wanted to make it a public thing um, because he had offered to resign privately, quietly, and they rejected his offer and were like, "No, we are we are going to reserve the right to make a big public statement about this." Um, which again, you know, you don't know, but but to the extent people have speculated that that politics was sort of the real reason they were firing him. You know, uh, that, that, that is certainly consistent with that story, right? How much of this is, you know, performative? This is the question that I keep. Like, how much of it is for display, for, you know, sort of sending a message, mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff? Uh, certainly a lot of it. I mean, I do think, well, like, the Princeton thing certainly is going to communicate a message to people that if you transgress the ideology, uh, it is more likely that your past will be dug up and used against you. I mean, you know, whatever you think about why they fired him and, and whether you take their, their explanation at face value or not, it's very clear that uh, just the causality was that he wrote this op-ed, it was controversial, the controversy generated more scrutiny, and the scrutiny in turn led to this investigation being reopened. And just to be clear, yeah. he wrote a op-ed criticizing wokeness. Yes, right? yeah, yes. Yeah. And and I would say also to be, you know, people honed in on, he, he called a student group a, a small local terrorist organization in the context of basically saying that they, you know, metaphorically terrorized their peers. Um, and, you know, yes, it's hyperbolic language, but uh, a lot of the people he was criticizing used hyperbolic language too. Um, including some of the exact same language of terrorism to describe things that weren't actually terrorism. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I, I read a lot of uh, criticisms from both left and right of our of our current order. Language he used was uh, nowhere near as incendiary as plenty of other language that's used every day on Twitter. So, you know, the whole idea that this was like extra out of bounds is just silly. So what does it look like being a law school student now in, say, Yale or another some of these other schools that are, you know, I guess, deep in the ideology? It, it varies by school. You know, Harvard and UChicago are probably not as bad as Yale, Georgetown, Stanford, et cetera, um, just for a lot of weird contingent reasons. But in general, I would say uh, Kids are very afraid to say what they really think. They're afraid to play devil's advocate in the classroom. I've heard stories about kids being, you know, raked over the coals for merely offering like a hypothetical defense of a Scalia dissent. You know, you don't even if you say, "I am not endorsing this. I'm just saying one could argue that," you know, which is what you're supposed to do in law school there will be a struggle session where all the kids are like, I can't believe you would say this horribly racist thing. So, you know, uh, it, the, the, the kind of adversarial culture that's supposed to characterize law school classrooms, I think, has really, really eroded. And at a place like Yale, uh, 
I'm sure there are certain professors who are better than others, and you can take classes where the kids are more, there is more open debate, but my sense is that there really is like a, a just a, a imperative to keep your head down if you don't want to experience what, what some people have called social death. I mean, they use that. I, I, a Harvard law professor I spoke to used that term. That's how he characterized um, how even liberal students feel about potentially saying something slightly at odds with woke orthodoxy. I mean, th this is, of course, will sound bizarre to many people like myself because, you know, debate is what is done in the legal profession. Yes. I mean, that's what it's about, right? And convincing people of things. Um, how, how does how, how does that square with with what's happening? Well, you know, I th I think it has a number of downstream effects, and I want to be careful here because some people I think will read this kind of account and think ah so like the lawyers are just gonna like clam up and like you know burst into tears at the first you know controversy in the courtroom and won't be able to do their jobs. And to be honest, I, I kind of doubt that that's really what. Is going to happen, um, and, and I worry that if you, if people act like that's what's going to happen, they're going to miss what's so dangerous, which mm -hmm. is not, you know, if all these kids just like, you know, melted down on the first, uh, the moment they they got into an adversarial context, well, that'd be great. They'd have no power. The problem is that they don't actually melt down. You know, they they're what they're going to do is, I think, kind of transform various legal institutions from within, sort of prosecute a substantive ideological agenda through courts and government agencies. Um, and also, you know, where where the kind of breakdown of adversarialism might be, might be a big deal is, you know, when it comes to, like, say, ethics uh, requirements for the bar, you know, and if you make kind of an off-the-cuff comment on the courtroom steps and someone perceives it as racist and then they report you to the bar and you know you get like a, a harassed with ethics complaints or something there's a lot of ways in which you can you know make the profession less hospitable to uh, opposing points of view um, you know i think one concrete way this manifests is that in law firms big law is just not going to take controversial pro bono cases mm. you know or at least or they may take ones that we would consider controversial, but but you know, defund the police activism. I think you can probably get away with doing pro bono stuff. But like you know, someone someone told me something like, "God help you if you want to file an amicus brief for feminists for life." Right? You know, you're just there, there's all sorts of causes like abortion, religious liberty that, you know, increasingly big law firms just don't want to touch because their younger staff will get really mad at them and be like, how can we represent X, Y, or Z evil person? And then the other dynamic is that corporations that work with the firm will reach out to the firm and be like, we're not happy that you're representing this other guy who's problematic. And you know, if Coca-Cola is, th is implicitly threatening to sever ties with your law firm, I mean, Coca-Cola is a huge client, so you're not gonna wanna lose them. Um, so there's also kind of economic incentives that mm -hmm. force the law firms to avoid controversy, um, and that's a problem, right? Because, you know, the, the whole premise of the American legal system is that everyone, no matter how, you know, unpopular deserves legal representation. John Adams famously defended the British soldiers accused of the Boston Massacre, and he said it was one of the greatest things he ever did for the fledgling republic that he helped found. Um, and that ethos is just not there to the same degree today as it used to be, partly due to these kind of external 
corporate and even media pressures, but also partly due to the fact that lawyers just no longer believe uh, in the way they used to that everyone deserves representation and that it is in fact a very honorable thing to do to defend someone you know, say accused of rape, who you yourself think is guilty. It's, it's honorable precisely because the justice system only works if even those people who you know are guilty um, get representation as a matter of course. Um, but that I think requires a certain, requires you to believe in certain institutional premises that increasingly these lawyers don't believe in and that they see as perpetuating all sorts of injustices within the legal system. Um, so it's a problem. Well, as you're speaking, I can't help think about Marcuse's repressive tolerance, you know, basically principle. The idea being that, you know, what's right is what's ide ideologically right and, right. and what's wrong. If it's not ideologically right, it's just always wrong. Right. Right. So is are you foreseeing like, a, you know, the legal system being remade in this sort of image? I mean, there's going to be pressure on it. Now, I think the good news is that the federal society, there, there is a kind of conservative legal movement that actually has institutions and the fact that it has a sort of institutional presence does make it, I think, more effective. So I would imagine that there will always be conservative lawyers and it's not going to be, you know, they're not going to be just totally driven out. But I do think there will be these kind of softer pressures um, that cause more and more of the kind of, you know, elite uh, legal world to coalesce around uh, a particular set of values that really are not liberal and are not the values of you know your your parents' lawyers, right? It's hard to predict exactly what will happen, but I think yes, like you're already seeing it erode. And look, the Supreme Court thing is a good example where you know if people believe that in the presence of a moral great moral crisis, you can suspend all the norms of the legal system, and people believe that racism and sexism and all these things are current ongoing moral crises that pervade every aspect of our lives well you know then that that's basically an argument for just jettisoning all the norms that make the legal system work the way it does and it's a bit hard to imagine exactly what that looks like but it's certainly going to be different i think than the legal system that we've had for uh many many years well one way you know one obvious way would be you know your guilt or innocence is determined by your, you know, position on the intersexual and intersectional hierarchy, for example, right. right, as opposed to what actually happened. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the other the other thing, too, and th this is this is zooming out a bit, but, you know, even if the law continues to be formally colorblind, even if the law continues to uh proceed under the the norm of innocent until proven guilty you know when the when there's these media show trials right um and and all this kind of institutional pressure outside the law it only matters so much what the law says right you know um when for example i mean you saw a lot of these states that were doing racial rationing of COVID drugs. They, they, they did back off in the, in the face of legal threats, but they were willing to do it in the first place, uh, even when they were told in some cases that it was illegal 
but they just kind of went ahead and did it anyway because they were like, well, it's just the, the consensus was just, well, racial preferences in medicine are just what you do. Um, and, and so once that becomes just kind of an institutionalized, common sense, almost conventional wisdom, law can maybe blunt the worst excesses, but you know, it's, there, there's only so many lawyers, they can't be everywhere at once. Um, if people don't feel a kind of need to follow the law is sort of independent of, of sanctions. You know, if, if, if the only reason they're following it is because they're worried about not getting in trouble, you know, not because they think it has some kind of intrinsic normative weight, you know, you're probably going to in practice see a lot more things happen kind of under the table that are illegal. Um, and yeah, just saying, well, but like the Constitution prevents this. Well, okay, but you know, unless like some enterprising reporter goes and surfaces that uh, Utah is racially discriminating in the provision of life-saving care, Utah's still going to discriminate in the provision of life-saving care, even when they're told it's illegal. Um, and you know, by the time someone sues them, they're already going to have been doing that for like a year. Uh, and that's going to affect who lived and died in the state of Utah who had COVID, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's it's not enough to just even maintain a kind of conservative or, or anti-woke presence in the legal system. You really got to fight the war on all fronts um, because there's just only so much that the law can do in the face of an overwhelming uh, lawless elite consensus. So how far gone are things then? Pretty far gone, but in the long run, there's some reason to be hopeful. I mean, I do think uh, just the other day, I saw Michael Powell, who's a New York Times reporter, came out with a piece about trans women in sports that was, you know, I think respectful, but kind of critical of, you know, Leah Thomas and some, some of these cases. Uh, to me, there are signs that there's a lot of dissatisfaction with this ideology. There are signs that, uh, especially when the, the red wave comes in November, that there's, uh, there are going to be political recriminations and, you know, the, the, there is a kind of feedback mechanism that may prevent it from just being kind of a secular, straight, you know, race to the bottom for how woke we can be. But what worries me is that even if we're fine in the long run and eventually there's a blowback um, and eventually, you know, the, the, the regime collapses under the weight of its contradictions, it can do a lot of damage in the meantime. And especially with young people, you see these studies on how young people believe, you know, what they think about free speech. And it's just, it's very striking that the generation that is about to sort of replace the boomers and everyone as the, as the head of all these institutions, a lot of them really do buy into um, a, a much more censorious, much more illiberal set of values around free speech and diversity. Um, and so I don't know if we've really seen quote unquote peak woke yet. I think, I think, I think what's gonna, what ultimately what this will depend on is whether this generational tidal wave of young woke people can be kind of shocked out of their ideology once the costs of it really start to pile up. I mean, I don't think, you know, we haven't even begun to see what, you know, 
what true defunds looks like. You know, I, I think I think, and you saw like in certain cities, right? All these all these like woke white liberals were like, yeah, defund the police, and then oh, now crime is up like three hundred percent. Well, maybe maybe we shouldn't have done that. When that kind of thing happens in every institution all at once, and it's really this generational tidal wave, you're gonna you're gonna see a lot of cost to the ideology, and I think the costs are gonna have to become quite substantial and felt by a very broad cross-section of people for there to be some reconsideration of it. I, I do think that will happen eventually, but, you know, some people will say, well, but it'll happen eventually, Aaron, so, like, why are you worried? Well, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed eventually, but it did a lot of damage in the meantime, and when it collapsed, you know, the attempt to pick up the pieces didn't go so well either. Um, I don't think we're on the cusp of, you know, Soviet-level totalitarianism or, you know, post-Soviet Russia. Like, I'm not saying that. But the point is just, just because something doesn't last forever doesn't mean it can't do a lot of damage and that you shouldn't fight against it, right? No, I understand. And it's, I mean, it's kind of fascinating to see this. I guess it was, you know, 2021, really, that, you know, the, the place where I saw just kind of society at large mm -hmm. becoming cognizant mm -hmm. of what's happening was, and I've heard this story anecdotally, I mean, literally hundreds of times, you know, parents on Zoom mm. listening to what their kids yeah. are actually learning in school. I mean, it's just kind of fascinating. That's the flip side to the panopticon. I mean, I, I don't like the panopticon, but the way in which disillusioned parents have then sort of turned the, the panoptic character of our society to their own advantage, right, against these woke school teachers, it may be a reflection of a, of a bad state of, of affairs in which everything we say is, is public, but it also does allow for a kind of grassroots pushback to take place. And I do think that with Look, the COVID pandemic, insofar as it is it as it accelerated the uh, digitalization of everything, um, did arguably provide sort of dissidents of wokeness with more weapons um, and more knowledge of what was going on. Um, and I think that is a good thing. Um, and I frankly. You know, I, I think one, one challenge uh, sort of anti-woke people need to think through is that uh, a lot of things that they decry, like the panopticon, like cancel culture, et cetera, are in fact effective means of fighting back against uh, wokeism. I mean, they just are. Right, you know, libs of TikTok publicizing these crazy teachers. This clearly does move the needle. Um, I don't love all the laws that states like Florida have passed, but the reality is that when you create a chilling effect, you know, people are like, "Well, this will create a chilling effect to talking about LGBT things." And yes, and I think some of that chilling effect is bad. You know, I don't want a teacher fired for just saying that they have, you know, uh, that they're in a gay relationship or something. But, uh, you know. If the educational institutions are all captured and they're just saying insane things and this is part of the curriculum, you kind of do need there to be a chilling effect of some sort uh, to, 
get these institutions to stop. And you saw with Disney, right, in Florida, the DeSantis kind of stood his ground and really, you know, went after him. And, and then now you see all these corporations suddenly are like, ooh, maybe we should be careful about taking positions on Obama issues. Um, yes, the chilling effect can be bad, but I think it, people aren't being honest if they don't recognize the upsides that certain chilling effects can have. And ultimately, I think a lot of the, the question here is, what is an acceptable chilling effect? Um, you know, what, what is justified in the service of combating this ideology, which itself, of course, has all sorts of chilling effects. And when do we start to really go too far and just, uh, you know, in, be, not just become no better than the enemy, but like, you know, just create all sorts of problems that, that no one foresaw and that, we, you know, we really want to stay away from. I, I think it's genuinely a tough question and, and I'm not sure anyone has figured out with the right balance. Well, so so let's talk about that, you know, sort of the the constructive tools of fighting mm -hmm. back against this ideology. I mean, you're obviously doing a shining of the light on it in yes. from in all sorts of different ways. That's your that's your way. Um, these parents, mm -hmm. obviously the same way, lips of TikTok exactly. So is that 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 is one major yeah. way? Um, what I, else is there? Well, so I do think that that is actually very effective, and I've been surprised by how. Uh, how many institutions I've seen sort of backtrack in the face of my reporting, like medical bureaucracies um, and even Yale Law School. You know, they, they, they did some damage control after one of the stories I broke. Um, you know, the issue, right, the limit is that there's just only so many reporters and you can't uncover everything. And so in order for there to be a really persistent deterrent, it needs to be something more like a law or like the threat of DeSantis coming in. You know, you gotta be, journalists aren't powerful enough to, to create a system-wide deterrent, unless journalists are hegemonically anti-woke, which of well, course is not true. Well, I was gonna say yeah. that many of them are actually on board Right, and that's thing, that's right? the problem, right? Yeah. You know, you know. I mean, yes, you can. And now, granted, you can sometimes get reasonable liberals to to admit, okay, yeah, you know, trying to you know ruin a kid's life for you know using an innocent term in an email is like is overkill. But yeah, on a lot of these questions, it is it is hard to get the you know the New York Times, the media, to really like jump down people's throats in the way that they jump down people's throats for racism, and so. Yeah, I, I do think you need to think in terms of incentives, and the you know the anti-CRT laws are potentially one way of changing the incentive structures. Although I think they have slippery slope problems, um, and I'm also not sure how much they really do because the education establishment is so woke that you know really woke teachers going to find a way around these laws. It's because well, CRT right, yeah. it's not so much the teaching of that. Well, there's this theory; yeah. it's the praxis, it's yes. the implementation, yeah, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, and and look honestly. You know, people talk a lot about um, the really crazy, you know, like anti-white diversity trainings. And sure, that stuff's bad. But um, in some ways, what's maybe more consequential, um, because I suspect more kids actually believe it, is when you present U.S. history in a way where you just emphasize the bads and none of the goods, right? You know, you don't even have to say it started in 1619. You just, if, if, if what you assign a paper on every, you know, month is... Uh, how X or Y oppressed group, you know, worked against their oppressors. Like, 
it, that's a valid thing to talk about, but if that's the only thing that a teacher is, is emphasizing, kids are going to come away with a very skewed vision of US history. Um, and you know that's not the kind of thing that these laws, I think, are really going to be able to get at. Um, you know, I, I alluded to this earlier. I do think that this structural asymmetry uh, in the way civil rights law binds public and private institutions, but the First Amendment sort of only binds public ones, I think that is a big problem. And mm. I, it's tough, right? Because civil rights law is also actually a mechanism that can be used to fight back against this. You say, well, look, the plain reading of the Civil Rights Act is that you know you can't discriminate on the basis of race, and therefore, you know, uh, giving, say, like you know, discriminating in medicine, right? You know, or you give uh, people of color extra points when it comes to allocating COVID drugs or doing these like crazy diversity trainings where you uh, inveigh against whiteness. You can use civil rights law as a tool to fight back against that. Um, but I think the problem is, you know, the, the, bureauc the, the, the result of that kind of these asymmetric incentives is that there's just more bureaucracy dedicated to policing racism. Um, than there is to dedicate it to sort of vindicating free speech rights, especially in, in private institutions like academic, like universities that, if not bound by the First Amendment, claim to believe in free speech and academic freedom. And so ideally, I think you would find ways, uh, if not legal, then certainly through kind of coordinated private action of incentivizing the creation of kind of countervailing bureaucracy um, or kind of incentivize the pairing back of some of the woke bureaucracy. Um, ideally, by making the woke bureaucracy more costly. I mean, it's it's now, you know, we're at the point where it's, it's subsidized and it's, you know, you're not really punished for having lots of DEI people. Um, if there were more negative consequences to having these massive bloated bureaucracies at, uh, on college campuses and elsewhere, I think you would see fewer of them. Um, and and the, that, the, the very fact that Disney and other companies did blink in the wake of DeSantis really going after them is evidence that, you know, they may have kind of their woke employees, but corporations still, they can't totally ignore the demands of the market. I mean, they, they, they when there's a real threat to their bottom line, they do tend to recalibrate. So you have to either find a way of clawing back the woke bureaucracy or of creating a kind of countervailing anti-woke bureaucracy uh, that, that serves as a sort of check on institutionalized wokeness. Um, how you do that, of course, in practice is very complicated. What legal incentives will or will not give rise to this uh, is, is a matter for prudential debate. And some, some of it can be done probably through the presidency, executive orders, and the administrative state. Um, I, I think conservatives should not be so alert. I mean, we're not getting rid of the administrative state. It exists. It's going to exist. So I, I'm largely on board with the idea that you should, where possible, you know, if there's like a President DeSantis, he should use the power of the administrative state to presumably fight, get back against some of this stuff. And, you know, he wouldn't be doing anything that, President Biden hasn't already done where, you know, like the Medicaid is like offering doctors bonuses if they do anti-racism plans, you know? Well, you could just tell Medicaid to not do that, right? Like that's, that's you know, you don't even have to pass a law. That's that's an administrative state thing. Um, so there's lots of levers you can pull. And and I mean, I and I think the, the last thing I'll say on this is you need a competent 
staff of conservative technocrats who know how to pull the levers. And in some ways, I think that's the biggest challenge. Like, say what you will about liberals, they generally understand how policy and government works. And, and the people who are most likely to staff these bureaucracies, they, they just they happen to be liberal. Um, so if you want to do something about the direction these bureaucracies have all gone in, um, you need there to be conservatives who aren't just, say, political theorists. Look, I love political theory. I did a lot of philosophy in college. It's great. But it just doesn't give you the technocratic expertise to manage or reform you know, an agency like the CDC. Um, you know, I, public health programs may all suck, but like you do need there to be public health departments. And uh, if all the people in the public health departments are really woke, you're not going to solve the problem. So I, I think that part of the real challenge here is getting a critical mass of smart conservatives to learn like how to be administrators of, say, a public health agency so that, you know, within public health, uh, the agencies are just less dominated by wokes. And I think that if there was that more of that ideological parity, you would see the institutions behave in a more defensible and, and mostly neutral way. Well, so a couple of things. One is I'm thinking of some of the very interesting work that Ross Vogt did at the Office of Budget Management under the Trump administration. You know, um, and people like that who can kind of, you know, mm -hmm. understand some of the levers, so to speak. Yes. But uh, the other thing is, I mean, just conservatives generally are much less inclined to want to be in bureaucracy, I yes. think. It's just a kind of a... I think that is true, and I think that's a problem. I mean, part of that may be a kind of contingent feature of, of American conservatism, right? Like in, in Europe, I don't think that that aversion is there to the same degree um, because their European conservatism just for a long time has been more comfortable with the state. Um, and American conservatism just, I think, intrinsically has a kind of just knee-jerk discomfort uh, with, with statism. And th that's positive in many ways. Um, you know, it does put the brake on certain kinds of disastrous statist policies. But in other ways, I think it can be an obstacle. And, it, and at this point, uh, you know, the sm look, the problem is that the smartest conservatives in DC who I know, a few of them are on the Hill, a few of them work at think tanks, but a lot of them either are just doing something that makes them money or they're doing something like political theory, um, like getting a PhD. And that's great, but like, you know, political theory PhDs rarely end up making policy, you know, or staffing or staffing the administrative state. It's just not very common. Aaron, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, any final thoughts? Yeah. So. The thing I would want to leave people with is that we often think of wokeness, neo-Marxism, the successor ideology, whatever you want to call it, as a kind of mind virus that just reproduces itself autonomously in these institutions, um, has a kind of logic of its own, um, and that uh, maybe won't be defeated with rational argument, but you know will be defeated if enough people just have the courage to stand up to it or, or kind of just develop a spine, right? You hear that a lot. And the reality, I think, is that this, you know, think about the way a virus takes over, right? It, it, there have to be things about the virus 
right, that, that allow it to enter the cells, but there are also things about the cells that make it possible for the virus to enter, right? The coronavirus, for example, has these the spike protein, and the reason it can infect you is because in your nose, you have this like protein receptor, and if you didn't have that receptor, you wouldn't be able to be infected with COVID. And I think that's the way to think about woke capture of institutions. Um, there are maybe features of these ideas that the fact that they appeal to our sense of black and white kind of more you know moral crusade. People like moral crusades. Um, they they touch they tuck at people's heartstrings about race. There's things about the ideas that do make them potent, but there's also things about the institutions, right, that, that make it easier for these kinds of potent moral ideas to enter. Um, I think one of those things is the, this legal asymmetry, as I've said, where institutions are legally liable um, for allowing certain kinds of discrimination and harassment, but not for stifling free speech. I think another kind of perhaps more, more abstract but important thing is that just bureaucracies by design, they have to make people in the bureaucracy and they have to make social reality legible, right? They have to be able to quantify racism. Um, and that means that there is always sort of a push to uh, reconceptualize racism as a matter of outcomes, not intent, right? Bureaucracies can't really judge what's in someone's heart, but they can totally measure how many uh, what percentage of Asians, whites, blacks are in the bureaucracy. And so just if you're, you know, this kind of idea that anti, that an racist policy is any policy that, you know, produces racial disparities, that's the Ibram Kendi formulation. That's a very convenient thing for bureaucracies to believe, right? That bureaucracies that have been tasked with adjudicating racism, partly of their own free will and partly from, you know, outside forces that have forced them to kind of do this, uh, civil rights statutes, what have you. You know, when you're when you're in that situation, I think there's just a tendency to glom onto ideologies that justify what you're already going to have to do in practice, which is bean count, right? There's no, you know, the, the easiest way for a bureaucracy to show that it's pursuing racial equity is to increase these quantifiable diversity metrics. And so you come up with an ideology that says that those diversity metrics are what matters. So those are just a few of the ways in which bureaucratic structure can um, influence the the an, an agency or organization's susceptibility to woke politics. And so what I would hope is that people who oppose woke capture of institutions will think less about, you know, spend less time writing these jeremiads against wokeness and dismantling it as an ideology, but work on dismantling it as a kind of bureaucratic phenomenon and work on changing the institutional level levers um, that have allowed it to gain power. I think that's really the key. Well, Aaron Siberium, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was great. Thank you all for joining Aaron Siberium and me for this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck. Try a 14-day free trial of Epoch TV at ept.ms slash freetrialyan. That's ept.ms slash freetrialjan.